You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. from me. I, I really just can't understand why Utah is throwing a shade. So welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. And I'm Fran, I'm not surprised that somehow you've made the entire state of Utah something about yourself. It's, <laughs> it's like, is it really something personal to you that you're, yeah. you're upset with Utah? I, you know, it's not. Um, you know, I don't think it's something personal, but I'm thinking maybe we could start some beef with them. Maybe start like <laughs> yeah. a, uh, you know, I want to get some listens here. That seems to be, yeah. you yeah, know, it's, it's bothering me. I, it's I thought, when you look at the map and you see there's one state that doesn't have any color to it, it it's, sticks it's, out. It's yeah. Utah. We're, we li- we're listening to in 49 states. I thought maybe we could start like a like a hashtag, like Get Native Utah yeah. or something yeah. just to like We've drum up some, some beef. We sent some native seed through Monarchs in the Rough. We actually sent some some seed there for a milkweed seed and, and uh, pollinator mix. So there's someone planting native stuff in Utah. There, Yeah, oh, I'm sure there is. They're just not listening to us. It's, it's, it's messing with my OCD. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, Fran... Your OCD is just off the charts, and this is really—it's making it hard to hard to live with you in the office. You, you know, it's it's something that I I try to keep in check. You know, in the office, I don't try to keep it in check anymore. Yeah, yeah. Like I I just let that flag fly. But it's it's starting to affect my personal life a little bit. It's uh, if Utah doesn't listen soon. I may be sleeping on the sofa. I'm just, <laughs> just just saying. So anyway, we should probably start talking about plants. Maybe that might help. Maybe it'll tune in. You if still don't talk. want to talk about Tiger King, or we could even talk about sourdough. <laughs> yeah. That's, oh. you, you know what? I would love we to talk. We still haven't done any of that. I would love to talk about Tiger King, but that would derail the whole episode. <laughs> We're just talking about Tiger King because, I, I, you know, it's been a while since I watched it, and so it yeah. hasn't. We haven't talked about it. But I'm still. I could easily hop back into it and talk about oh, it yeah, for two I hours. Think a lot of us could. <laughs> <laughs> but, but before we start talking about plants, I first want to talk about squirrels a little bit. Uh, oh, um, oh, that's interesting. A little Why bit so? different. And uh, have you ever heard the fact that when colonists first arrived to the United States, that a squirrel could travel from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mississippi without having to touch the ground? I have heard that. Well, it's actually not true. Oh, and that's okay. one of the reasons why we had our guest on today. Why we wanted to have him on because he does a lot better job of explaining why it's not true than I do. Okay, so um, that's why we had to bring on the prairie preacher himself and uh, Doctor Dwayne Estes. Why don't you Why don't you introduce the whole squirrel dilemma and where that all started from and and why we have such an obsession with trees when it comes to to restoration. Yeah, well, hey, guys, um, let's talk about squirrels. I think that's a great starting point. Um, yeah, my name is Dwayne Estes. I'm the executive director of the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative, and I'm based in uh, Clarksville, Tennessee. And, um, you know, for much of my life, I'm 42 years old. I've been hearing about how the forests of North America were once so dense uh, that a squirrel could travel from the Atlantic to the Mississippi River without touching the ground. And... You know, we all kind of have heard that story in our own different ways, uh, sort of independently. And I'm not sure where you heard it, uh, Tom and Fran, but I heard it first time was in uh, sixth grade. I was taking a class called Tennessee History, and I had a teacher named Tommy Johns, who I remember telling that story. 
Now, it's surprisingly that I remember that, that story because the, the other thing I remember from that class is getting paddled 13 times for talking too much. <laughs> you know, uh, we, you're a kindred spirit of mine. <laughs> yeah. But but somehow this this um, you know story of the squirrel just kind of filled my filled my head. And as a as a guy who grew up in sort of the proverbial hills and hollers of Tennessee, um, you know it was easy to kind of picture that because there were lots of big ancient trees around in the forest. And 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 I just had always grown up with the perspective that you know my ancestors and other ancestors uh, of other people had had done a great job, unfortunately, of clearing those forests. Um, but the more I got into my professional career, the more I learned that what we've been taught, most of us as Americans, is woefully inaccurate. And, and in fact, I would say that based on what we know now, that squirrel would not even have been able to really leave the Atlantic coast because of uh, there were so many vast and small grassland habitats that were scattered across the east. You, you know, you hear that story so much, you, you just assume that it's true and uh, and the first time i heard it was just in it it was in a conversation about carrier pigeons and and how you know the loss of their tree habitat led to their extinction and oh and you know there used to be so much forest Mm -hmm. that a squirrel could travel from here to here and you just like oh yeah that makes sense that it must be true um you know and and you've never heard anyone try to debunk it before it's just it's said so matter-of-factly that I think everyone just assumes it is true. Yeah. So where did that, as we've gotten into more into restoration, where did the focus get to be on trees? Like why are, it seems like there's all these programs now. It's, uh, oh, it's I'm trying to think of one that's off the top of my head, a, a company that's doing it where, oh, you buy our product and we're going to plant a tree. We're going to plant five trees. Yeah. And where that, did that come from you hear that a lot and it's hard to say which company because it's a lot of companies <laughs> that do it. it's like oh, yeah, right. for every every dollar you spend we'll plant one tree you know and, and it's always a focus of tree and that seems to be the focus but um you know they always overlook grasslands and early successional forests um so we're hoping you could explain to our listeners why that's important like why why it shouldn't just be trees well, there's a couple of there's a couple of things you know in that that are that are hard to kind of know for sure. Number one is you know why we have such an obsession in this country over um, over forest and woodlands and and how that sort of came to be is is not entirely clear. And I think that you know it's obviously um, forests and health healthy forests and healthy woodlands are obviously something we should all be concerned about. And um, and I love them very much in our organization, the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative, very much is a proponent of healthy forests and healthy woodlands. But all that aside, you know, somewhere along the way, this this story of, you know, the, the entire East being covered with forest took took hold. And I'm not sure exactly when that point is. I think a lot of it might have to do with the fact that, you know, the experiences of of. Um, some of the first settlers and explorers coming into the Northeast versus say the mid Atlantic versus the Southeast were, were probably quite different experiences, but a lot of what got written early on in American history in terms of a lot of uh, books, a lot of conservation leaders, a lot of schools of thought really began to emerge more out of the Northeast. You know, you think Mm -hmm. about, um, or out of the north. You think about Aldo Leopold, for example, and, and so many others who were writing uh, 
and, and Thoreau, right? Yeah. A lot of those guys were writing from a nor- northern and northeastern perspective about um, about what the country was like. And some of that, I think, got over-extrapolated to include parts of the Midwest or the Southeast. And, you know, some of that could have been also brought over from um, previous thinking that was going on back in the back in, in the old world, back mm-hmm. in England. You know, I've heard uh, similar tales that have been written about how England, the island of, of um, uh, England and, and Scotland were once covered in forests from one coast to the next. And, and I think there's some challenge to that these days. Similar, similar kinds of squirrel stories have, I've seen have come out of Russia, that parts mm-hmm. of Russia were once covered in vast forests. So something we're trying to chase down that squirrel and figure out where it originally <laughs> you know, started. I, I think part of that could really be perception. You know, you talk about the loss of of American chestnuts, and it's easy to to Google and find a, a photo of of large chestnuts, uh, chestnut trees in the Northeast with people standing next to it, and and you see the size. And I think people are quick to assume, oh, that's what it must have looked like. It must have mm-hmm. just been a, a ton of chestnuts and and they died off or or we cut them down and it's that's i think they forget that's just a snapshot that's just an an you know an area because you you have to think that the the native americans had open area to to live Mm -hmm. and and you know it's if 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 it was all forested you wouldn't have any of those early successional wildlife or Mm -hmm. birds yeah let, let me tell you a quick story that i found in some of the historical research that i've done that i think is sort of a testament to the way people were thinking in about the time around 1800. Okay, so um, French botanist Francois Michaud came over. His father had previously come over uh, to America in the 1790s, and uh, it was kind of customary back then for people to start their journey into America um, somewhere on the East Coast. So they would usually start in Philadelphia or okay. sometimes Baltimore. And they would go on these big journeys into the American interior. And so in the case of, uh, of Francois Michaud, he started out in, I believe, in Philadelphia, headed west on the old stagecoach, uh, probably out into around Pittsburgh, and eventually hopped on the Ohio River. And a lot of people in those days would sort of take that, take that journey. Other times they would go from Philadelphia down through Baltimore and eventually make their way down into Tennessee, in, into the heart of sort of the, the wilderness of what was then called the Southwest. But on this particular journey, Francois Michaud is coming down the Ohio River, and he gets off at a place called Limestone, which is in, in Kentucky. Okay. And he travels overland to modern-day Lexington, Kentucky, and he's on his way to eventually go to Nashville. And now you got to keep in mind, this is uh, about 1802, so Nashville at this time has just got maybe a few dozen houses at best. Okay. It's only about 20 years old, in fact, as a town. So he is on his way to Nashville, and he's crossing essentially the wilderness. And when he gets to Lexington, which is, you know, a fairly well-to-do town, even at that period in time, he gets warned by everybody. He says, listen, you're about to cross basically a virtual desert. There's no trees. There's no shade. There's no sun. I mean, it's all sun. There's no water. And you really better think about this before you cross this big, open, vast plain. So sure enough, he gets into this journey, and it is just sweltering. He's hot, and it's, he, he gets sort of depressed at this, at this scene of just walking across these endless grasslands. Finally, he gets all the way to what is now the modern-day Tennessee and Kentucky state line, and he says, 
within about five miles of reaching the Tennessee line, he said, I, I left what we called the Barrens. And the term Barrens was used to basically refer to, in that, in that case, a place where that was totally wide open and almost treeless. He said, I left the Barrens and entered the woodlands. Now, this is really important because he goes on to describe what the woodlands were. He said, the woodlands here in this five-mile-wide swath, um, they border the Barrens, and they consist of an area with scattered mockernut hickory trees and blackjack oak trees and post oak trees where the canopies of those trees don't quite touch one another. And the grass of the Barrens continues right on in underneath those woodlands. But then he goes on to say, after I crossed this five-mile-wide swath of woodlands, I got into Tennessee and entered the forest. And that's really important because the last thing he says, he says, the American people, most of the American people who live in the cities back east have no idea that there's a place among them that is so vast and wide open and without trees. But what I think is really telling is, 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 the, is the three usages there of barren, woodland, and forest. And what he's using there is the term of woodland. He talks about almost as if it was the common condition back east. Mm-hmm. And what, what's important about that is that then suggests that places like southeast Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, where he was coming from, that that open, sparsely treed landscape with grasses underneath might have been the most common condition that people were familiar with. So it was kind of unremarkable. Yeah, you know, you know, I I think the average person when you mention grasslands, I think they immediately think the Midwest. Um, you know, and it's it's easy to remember like the Northeast. You, you get forests only because you have the moisture to have forests. It's mm-hmm. it's conducive, but once you get further south, you know, it's 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 a little bit hotter. It's a little bit longer summers. Like I could see where maybe it's not as, you know, if you logically think about it, you could say, oh, maybe that's really not conducive to mm-hmm. like like a heavy forest and it makes sense but I, I i'm assuming that most of the cities in the southeast were really grasslands before colonization or that uh not really like heavy forests like one would think well and that's that's an important thing to define i guess off the bat is you know what we mean by the term grasslands so um kind of the new working definition for grasslands you know everybody thinks about the great plains as an open treeless grassland landscape but, but really, that term more recently has been uh, broadened to basically include almost any ecosystem where the bulk of the biomass or the gra- uh, is composed of grasses or sedges or wildflowers. And um, so you can go into places like, you know, eastern North Carolina where they've got pine savannas, and you can look around and there may be, you know, half the landscape may be covered in trees, but the ground floor is like a prairie. Okay. And and up on the you know above that the trees basically are one or two species of trees, um, but the ground floor is very much prairie like. So that would be the case of what we would we like to call a, a treed grassland, which is a savanna. But really in the south these grasslands came in all shapes and sizes from things like coastal beach dune grasslands to true open prairies, uh, rocky glades uh, like Soldier's Delight just outside of Baltimore for example. Um, or those that actually had a good sort of scattering of open open trees above a grassland floor. So how, you know, going against what, what common perception is 
for for those areas. How did the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative get started? How I, I guess we should go into a little bit of a history of your organization. Yeah, so um, we did def- definitely did not set out to as two guys who co-founded it. Myself and, and my co-founder is Theo Whipple, who's okay. based in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, we definitely did not set out to create a new organization. Um, he has a full-time job as a state botanist for the state of Arkansas, and I had a full-time job and still do as a professor of, of botany at Austin Peay State University in Tennessee. Um, but really, it kind of began, we as good friends mutually were um, aware of and concerned about how we were seeing a loss of grassland habitat, like really high quality prairie remnants and savanna remnants were disappearing at an alarming rate. And so much of our research was kind of focused on that in trying to address that. Okay. Going into about 2014 and 2015, my life kind of took a turn, and I, I sur- suffered just some some personal setbacks. Uh, I had a, bo- a son that was born with a heart defect, required heart surgery, and I had some some job setbacks. Um, it was a long winter. I was kind of suffering from sort of seasonal depression, and you know. In that moment, I realized that I, I was kind of suffering from a lack of connectivity with nature. And I was talking to my friend about it, and, and he was kind of going through similar things. And in my own particular circumstance, I sat there in my in my kitchen. I looked out in my backyard, and, and I said, you know, my, my house is basically sits within what used to be a, a former 3.5 million acre tall grass prairie. But today, all the other houses in my neighborhood, they're all the same all the landscape is the same. And, and one of the things is there's no more prairie left. And so in that moment of need where I needed to take my family out and really heal, and I needed to heal my own self and my own mind, I couldn't find a good place in the winter to go to. You know, you don't want to go into a forest in the wintertime sometimes <laughs> to, yeah. to get the kind of soothing that you need. So yeah. I, I talked to my family. I said, you know, there's a, there's a prairie it's, an, uh, it's a park. It's about 30 miles north of here. Why don't we go up there? So it was a cold early March day in 2015, and we drove up. And But it was it was the kind of day in the winter when, you know, it's been a long winter, and you're just longing for the return of spring. And my little go- girl whose hair was just shining and golden among those prairie grasses as we walked out in that field, all of a sudden we realized it was a lot warmer than what we had imagined. Hmm. Okay. And those grasses were just basking in and soaking up the, the warmth of the sun. And it was such a healing feeling. And I thought to myself, for so many areas across the South that used to be grasslands, like Charlotte, North Carolina, Montgomery, Alabama, um, you know, even places like Philadelphia had a substantial grassland component historically. Mm-hmm. For those areas, all we have left anymore really are either forests to go to, which are great, but they don't offer the same kind of conditions or we have like city parks with playgrounds and slides and swimming pools. We don't really have intact high quality natural areas that are open landscapes anymore. And that was really the first instance where I said, we're going to have to do something about this. So I'll stop there because that's, that's not the whole answer as to how we created it. But that was really the, that was part of the impetus behind it. You, you know, I just want to say that's so that that first of all, that's a fantastic story, and it's so relatable, um, 
especially in the times that we're in right now, and, and I don't know if, Tom, you and I have ever talked about this, but like even though we deal with with native plants in nature, most of my day is behind a desk and on the phone. And mm-hmm. and it's real easy, even though the subject is is native in nature, you can become so disconnected with it that it it really like it, it becomes two different things almost. And this podcast, Absolutely. you know, really rejuvenated my whole love for the whole thing just because mm-hmm. you're you know you're getting to share your passion about it with other professionals who are passionate about it and you get a deeper understanding and it opens up a whole new world and then all of a sudden you're going out and you're visiting these places you're you're becoming more active in it and um you know the last couple of months my fiance and I have been just going on hikes with some of the places and you know and really what kind of what you just said there's a a trail that's right by our work it's literally mm. like a couple miles you can see it from here and we had never walked it before but you kind of start off winding through the forest and then you come out to open meadow and it was it, like you stand there and you're like i don't know that i've ever seen this before like yeah. i don't know like you realize like that line as you come out it, it just really hit me like we stopped for a minute <laughs> and was just like you don't realize how much you appreciate this until you see mm-hmm. that that line like that hey we're out of the forest look at this because you don't get that area anywhere where you're standing in the middle of a field almost as far as the eyes can see and there's no one else there and that's not something you see in the northeast Mm -hmm. so thank you for sharing that that that's that 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 hit a spot with me (laughs) well yeah and let me tell you then how we kind of merged that i think you hit a lot of great things on the on the head there which is you just don't see that those open landscapes in some parts of the east anymore and so what, what Theo and I did, we, we then coupled those emotional, personal connections to the land that both of us had and the need to be in those open spaces with our families, which he had young kids, I had young kids. And then we coupled that together with our professional training as, as botanists to say, okay, let's, let's look at this now from a science perspective, what's going on. And so as we began to look at like the rare plants of the Southeast, we realized that the overwhelming majority were actually not tied to forested landscapes at all, but they're the, the rarest species in most cases per region are actually grassland species. So we looked mm-hmm. at, we looked at rare animals and we started doing some of that. And the same thing is that a large chunk of the rare terrestrial animals of any given region, they need open spaces. But as we began to reconcile that with what we were seeing with conservation actually on the ground, we kept seeing new forest preserves being established. You know, $100 million uh, spent on a you know, 10,000 acre new forest acquisition, um, a new coastal project, a new forest, a new coast, a new forest, a new wetland. And what we weren't seeing were investments by conservation funders in grassland projects. And so our, our first thing we said was, look, well, we've got to figure out a way to facilitate a conversation to get a bunch of, to figure out what's kind of the state of science with this. So the next thing we did was going into 2016, we decided to host a symposium. We called it the Mid-South Prairie Symposium. And it was uh, hosted back in Tennessee at my institution. And we had, this, this was a three-day event. And we had about 30 different speakers that came. We had field trips. It was a, a three-day event. And, guys, the very last person who registered for that event actually came from New York City. Okay. And um, he came down there. We may have had a chance to speak for, like, five minutes. And at the end of this event, 
where we had all this information that came out about the grasslands of the Mid-South region, he wrote to me and he says, look, guys, I am blown away. He said, I'm with a private philanthropic foundation out of D.C. He said, our foundation invests in some big projects in, in the savannas of Kenya. But coming to your conference and hearing about the, the, the perils of what our southeastern landscapes are facing makes us realize that we want to put some money towards figuring out how to, how to solve this biodiversity crisis of the loss of grasslands in the east. He said, so what I'd like you guys to tell me is what role can private philanthropy play in your mission to restore southern grasslands? Guys, I, I had to go look the word philanthropy up right there. <laughs> I, I knew what the hell he was talking about. <laughs> so one thing led to another. We, we got back in touch with him. And, uh, you know, that was May of, that was June of 2016. And since then, their foundation has given us $800,000 to wow. try to solve this problem. And they haven't given it outright, but they've leveraged it through challenge grants, which mm -hmm. have helped us to bring other uh, national and uh, even some international leaders to come into partnership with us, which we're really excited about. And, and you're not that old of an organization. Mm -hmm. No, we just uh, we formally launched January 2018. So, I mean, we're a little over two years old. Wow. Wow. And, you, and you've gotten some some really good partners in that time already. Like that's. That's been that's wonderful, actually. I I, I don't know too yeah. many too many organizations that could that could boast that. Yeah, and and Dwayne, this is a compliment to you, but I can understand why someone would be so eager to jump in with you because you listen to you you give a presentation and um and it's not just me who thinks, but other people I know who've seen your presentations, you're automatically captivated because you know so much of the history. Um, of the areas that you're working in and you're talking it's so multifaceted you're talking about the diversity you're talking about what it used to be and really it paints an amazing picture and it's hard to not pay attention <laughs> i've been to a lot of lot of conferences and presentations and there's some that are really hard to pay attention to it's the opposite with yours so i can understand why so many people have been eager to jump on but i think another one of the things you guys have capitalized on is you get a lot of volunteer support with a lot of these projects. Um, I've seen just through your social media, you have people that are helping collect seed and, and clean seed and doing all this stuff. How, how did you get so many volunteers to jump in in such a quick amount of time? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that the, um, I think people have been inspired by, I think people have been inspired by the message that, you know, we're not just coming at this from, a conservation angle or a biodiversity angle. That's very important to us. But as an organization, uh, equally important to us is the, the cultural uh, connections that our grasslands have. And so what we like to tell is that we're telling an untold story of both American history and American conservation. And, and through that, we're, we're sort of bringing the natural history and cultural history together. And I think that helps us to draw from a much larger audience of interested people than we could otherwise. If I think if we were just coming at this from a native plants perspective uh, or native animals perspective or just a conservation angle, you know, we would not have had the success we've had, but we are just equally passionate about the study of American history and what old settlers and what 
former slaves and what Native American tribes have to say about these grassland landscapes and how important they are and how they figure prominently into their lives and their cultures. You know, so through that, then I think we we come at this with a need to answer a lot of questions and a need to do a lot of things. And so we have a diverse set of offerings for people to get involved. So, for example, some of our volunteers, um, maybe some retirees are really good at genealogical research. Hmm. They're really good at going to the local county archives or library and pouring through historical documents and microfilm. Those are just the kind of people we need as volunteers on our side, even though they may not have an interest in wildflowers. Mm -hmm. They can help us by going back and pulling Revolutionary War era land grant surveys and helping mine that to find out what trees the first surveyors were using mm -hmm. to, to map those properties. Then those data get used by some of the ecological ecologists on our team because those trees that they were recording in the 1680s or 1720s tell a story about what the land was like. And then likewise, we have people say, you know what, I don't really, I'm not really good at research. I just want to get, I just want to let my mind go while I'm working physically doing some hard labor. I want to remove privet. I want to, you know, treat mm -hmm. invasives. And, you know, then a lot of people like the social aspect. They come out and as we are collecting seeds and cleaning seeds, we get people from teenage kids to grandparents. And it's so neat to see people from all different walks of life, different ethnic groups, um, different age groups, working together in sort of what we like to think of as like an outdoor sort of community center experience. Mm -hmm. And it is just, when you leave those events, when I'm at, the, at those events, I just feel inspired and invigorated. And so I think for that reason, Tom, we, we have a lot of people who are just interested in helping. In fact, we need to build our capacity to do more because we're we're really just overwhelmed by the response that mm -hmm. we've had and so positive. I, I you have connectivity on so many levels. That's you know it's one thing like you said if it were just native plants or conservation, but you have so many people connecting on so many different levels. It could even just be. Um, you know, romanticism about, oh, in my childhood, you know, this. A lot of people just tend to picture, you know, how it was in their lifetimes, but maybe don't necessarily think what it meant to their, their parents or their forefathers. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's just you have so many people connecting on a level, different levels, and sharing that. Like like I was saying earlier, this is one of the things I love about the podcast. Like I'm not a marine biologist, but connecting with all these other people and sharing their passion, you feel connected mm -hmm. uh, as part of that. And I love that that's – that's the message and what's bringing people together for this. Yeah. So moving on to you guys are obviously the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative. How did you figure out how big that map was going to be? Um, <laughs> yeah, because we've, we've talked about the Southeast, but it, it's yeah. stretching, you know, into the, the, the lower Northeast. Yeah, and, and you mentioned like it really started out with just two of you, and now you're getting a lot of, uh, I don't think philanthropical is a word, but. I think people understand. You're getting a lot of, of charitable donations. Um, you're getting a lot of volunteer efforts. And I guess, what did that original map look like where you really wanted to focus? And then how quickly did it did it expand to even include places in Pennsylvania and in Delaware and our neck of the woods? Yeah, that's a really great question. So, you know, originally with a guy from Tennessee and a guy from Arkansas, you know, we were at first – 
even before, you know, if I go back to like when I was talking about my daughter playing out in that prairie and just getting that healing experience for the, for the next year of my life, um, before we held that symposium that I mentioned, I worked really hard to just grow the local impact and, and local awareness. So I, you know, I went to the local Bridgestone America's uh, Tire Corporation and met with their group of um, employees who had like a volunteer program. And they had like a, a monthly speaker series. So I talked to them. I went to the friends group of my local state park. I talked to them. I talked to the garden club. I talked to anybody who would listen in that first year. But my intent was I didn't care about making a difference in, say, Ohio or in North Carolina at that point. I wanted to improve conditions in my own backyard. Right? I wanted it to be different for my kids and such that in 10 years or whatever, really I made a pledge to them that I wanted to restore prairies that they could play in and that their kids' friends could play in while they were still children. That was, that, that was sort of nice. the, the impetus behind it. So, you know, it started local for me, <clears throat> and it started local for Theo because he also was seeing the demise of grasslands around Little Rock. But when we were when we were tasked with by the band foundation of quote dream big, that's exactly what they told us. They said, We want you guys to dream big about this. That's when we started applying this to a broader region. And so we initially conceived of an area what we called the interior southeast. And it was largely we our rationale was that there's a lot of focus already on the Great Plains, that there's a good amount of focus on like the Illinois and Indiana prairies that the southeastern uh, lonely pine savanna lands of Florida and Georgia are pretty well covered by like organizations like the Longleaf Alliance. But we thought, okay, that area from like eastern Texas through Arkansas, north Alabama, southernmost Indiana and Illinois, Kentucky, over into like uh, Virginia and southern West Virginia is, is a region where that's the area where people especially think it was forested and where there's really not a lot of work going on currently with respect to grassland habitats. But then as we brought in other team members, like Dr. Reed Noss, who wrote the book, Forgotten Grasslands of the South, and we brought in Dr. Alan Weekly from University of North Carolina, they, they are big into the coastal area. So like Reed lives in Florida, Alan lives in North Carolina. They said, you can't call yourself the Southeastern Grasslands <laughs> if you don't take in the coastal plain. And, of course, Reed's, Reed's book makes a great case for why Florida is an epicenter for grassland diversity. Hmm. So we, we agreed, and, and we thought, okay, let's let the science dictate that. And so we, we justified the inclusion all the way to the coast, the Atlantic and the Gulf. But then um, three years goes by, and actually just in these past two to three weeks, we've been refining our northern and western boundary. And so what we've done is to – avoid scope creep and eventually just taking in everything because you can't do that and still have it be manageable. We put together a science advisory team to help us scrutinize our boundaries on the northern and western side to where we were making good sort of science-based justifications, decisions for, for why our boundaries are what they are. So ultimately then for the northernmost boundary, like in say New York, Pennsylvania, across through Missouri, we define that as the north, as basically the southern extent that the glaciers came down during the ice ages. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
And why that's important is because when you look at plant and animal species across the southeastern United States, many species which are decidedly kind of southern species, they get all the way up into Pennsylvania. They often get to Long Island and they get up to like southern, you know, to Cincinnati. So they get actually well into the northeast. So I think if you really looked at it, southern Pennsylvania and parts of, say, central New Jersey are decidedly more southern with respect to their biodiversity than they are northern. Oh, yeah, without a and doubt. And so, so what, what we're doing basically is defining what we call the biogeographic southeast, and that's the reason why we include those lower parts of the northern, northern states. You, you know, I think it's pretty funny. A lot of people consider a Pinelands Nursery a tree grower, which we do grow trees, but uh, our top three growers are all salt marsh species, and in, in some years, that's a third of our business between mm-hmm. three, oh, yeah. you know, between smooth cord grass, salt meadow hay, and, and spike grass. That's that's a third of our business. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. You know, and our, our top five or six plants are probably all grasses. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. You know, you add in little blue stem and, and Pennsylvania sedge and that type of thing, and that's that's the bulk of our business. <laughs> Which is kind of cr- you know, and and people don't think that I don't I don't think that's oh, their yeah. first thought yeah. when they're they're considering that. So that's it, it's it's nice to see that you've included those areas. Yeah, and in my mind, I'm we're not too well. We're Pinelands Nursery, um, not too far from the New Jersey Pinelands, um, where my dad started the company. He was living in the New Jersey Pine Barrens. That's where he got the name. But um, you go down there, and it's yeah, it's a lot of trees. But uh, a friend of mine were hiking around a couple of weeks ago and all of a sudden you come along uh, a, a wide open grassland it's a lot of broom sedge and, and little blue stem and those kind of things and a lot of wet meadows there is a lot of open habitat they don't see when you're just driving down route 72 going to the beach you see a lot of pine trees and you see some oak trees if you're even paying attention to the trees but uh but there's a lot of and there's a lot of those spaces like you were talking about earlier where it's almost like a, a woodland is how it's described where it's a tree here, a tree there, and a lot of those same grasses underneath. Yeah, it's um yeah a pretty unique ecosystem, and uh, sounds similar. It's a lot more similar to what you're finding down in the southern part of the country with uh, the big pine savanna. Yeah, and I think what you guys just hit on there is something that you know we're we're seeing. If you look across our entire focal region, which you know extends from the southern part of Long Island, New York. Uh, west all the way to Columbia, Missouri, and then south to Miami and about probably Brownsville, Texas. Mm-hmm. So it's a big it's a big yeah. region, part of 24 states. If you look within that giant region, the grasslands that you had historically, basically today they kind of come in three main uh, sort of modern, modern phases, right? So if you're driving across, um, you know, Delaware or North Carolina or Texas, or Kentucky, um, your three grasslands that you see today primarily fall into these groups. They are closed forests and woodlands. They are pastures and they are crop fields. And so what, and a lot of people say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, we have lost so much of our grassland habitat that it basically today exists in in very much an unrecognizable state. Mm -hmm. So the vast majority of our grasslands in the southern U.S. Um, are not grasslands anymore at all, but they, because of the lack of fire which they need to survive, and because of things like the removal of bison and elk, 
those grasslands, the things that kept them open are no longer at play. And so many of the grasslands, like on, on really sandy and kind of rocky soils that had scattered trees or what we call savanna grasslands, they, they became very much choked with thickets and eventually developed into forest. And so if you drive major swaths of the southeast today, there are forested landscapes. The historical record is pretty clear that many of those areas were once open savannas. And sometimes it takes sort of a trained naturalist to be able to still pick out those remnants that remain in those areas. And, and so I would challenge a lot of people to do, you know, if you're on the Delmarva Peninsula, for example, of Maryland, Delaware, or um, if you go out in that region, you may see a lot of forests in particular regions that don't have any modern characteristics of grasslands, <laughs> except if you go through the power lines that have been cut through those forests, that's where the grasslands yeah, are. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and it's not just like weedy species, but that's where like the rare species that need open landscapes exist. And people would say, well, I thought that was just a power line. Why is that a grassland? And and so what we have to realize is that our landscape, especially in the mid-Atlantic, has been so impacted for so long that our grasslands that existed really began to disappear before our nation was even founded in mm -hmm. 1776. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's very feasible that grasslands of Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey, parts of Virginia – were probably gone by the year 1750, in fact. Mm -hmm. Wow. So what we have left are basically just these little scraps that are that are holding on. And, 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 and I hope they can. Prior to that, there's not much documentation prior to that what that area was, um, you know, pre-colonization. It's, it's hard to go back more than a couple yeah. hundred years to say, oh, this is, this is what it was. So it's – there's no historical – backdrop or it's hard to come across it how challenging is that for you in, in in your efforts with with the lack of that type of information it's really challenging because you know a lot of what we know about vegetation management and conservation largely is built on the on the research that was done by ecologists and biologists during the 20th century right so thanks Ecologists like Lucy Brown, who worked out of Cincinnati and wrote about the extensive forests of the East. Um, what what oftentimes doesn't has not uh, been passed down into our modern land management is the attention to the historical record, the non-science record. Mm -hmm. yeah. So getting into those, what did the first settlers say? What did the land survey say? You know those kind of things, and and unfortunately because. I think the way America grew as a nation, the, very, the first settlers and the first explorers were just trying to survive. And they oftentimes didn't have the time of day to sit down and write about what they were seeing. In fact, to sit down and write and take your attention off of your surroundings could be a death sentence, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, and, and that's what makes me appreciate someone like uh, John Audubon. Yeah. Uh, more of the fact oh, that what he doc what he was able to document for us otherwise that that would have been lost. Uh, right. You know, and, and, and he did it at a great time where he was able to capture so much. Um, but you do and you do have those uh, periodic things that you gotta know where to look and how to find them and they're they're tough. But like for the Maryland um, DC area, for example, and in northern Virginia, um, 
there's a, a lot of great maps that go back into the 1600s for that area because that was one of the first regions settled. And so you see a lot of cartographers are, are developing maps in the middle 1600s and late 1600s. But it's interesting to look at the, um, the, the change of those maps through the course of time. They get clearer and clearer and more definite, and they get more kinds of ac- you know, greater accuracy. Yeah. But, but really, when you look around 1680 is when you start to first see grasslands being mentioned uh, in that region of sort of the, uh, the eastern Atlantic seaboard area. And there's a big area of grassland like in Virginia and North Carolina called the Grand Savannah. Uh, that, that becomes mapped in the 1680s there. And then you can look at like Thomas Jefferson's father, for example, was a surveyor, uh, Peter Jefferson. And he came out with a, with a great map of the Mid-Atlantic and Allegheny region in 1751. And, and it showed some, some grassland areas on there. Um, and, and one of my favorites is um, in a early history of the state of Virginia, it talks about how as, as the, um, New, new colonists were coming in and beginning to push off of the Atlantic coast. They were pushing into the area just west of D.C., like in the Shenandoah Valley. And he talks about even in the 1730s when they got into that valley, that it was a wide open prairie land with buffalo and elk. And in fact, if you look on some maps, they actually map that and call that the, the Grand Prairie of Northern mm-hmm. Virginia. And it stretched over into adjacent Frederick County, Maryland, and a little bit into that eastern panhandle of West Virginia. Who today would even think about that area as being once a, a former vast prairie? Yeah, and and I'm I'm sure it's probably undocumented to an extent that those areas are probably dangerous to navigate. You're putting yourself in the open with no resources for shelter or <laughs> or or anything like that. I'm sure it was probably humans tended not to to occupy those areas just because you're you're leaving yourself wide out in the open. And the t- a lot of times because they they might have been uh, sparse with respect to trees, you know, people would often call them barrens. And there was this uh, assumption that those areas were not very fertile and that the trees didn't grow there for mm. a reason. Gotcha. And so they were often avoided by early settlers uh, specifically for that purpose. They were seen as sort of wastelands in many respects. Gotcha. Gotcha. Speaking of challenges um... – one of the things I noticed on your website that immediately my eye was drawn to it was at the very top are the words 25 years will be too late. And we've been talking about challenges. What are some of the, the current challenges uh, facing grasslands in that in this area? Yeah, that, that slogan, 25 years will be too late. I, I get asked about that frequently. A lot of people want to know what that's about. And my co-founder, Theo Witzel, and I were – when we were kind of creating um, – the, the original concept to deliver to the band foundation about dreaming big and creating SGI. I, I just was, we were sitting in this little ratty hotel room in Ironton, Missouri one night. And uh, I said, Hmm, we need something catchy. And I started thinking about things and I said, 25 years will be too late. He said, what the hell does that mean? I said, well, I'm just thinking about it. I said, when I was in high school in the early nineties, growing up about an hour South of Nashville, uh, bobwhite quail were common. I said, I could walk through brushy fields and pastures and I could count on every time I went to the field, I could count on having my nerves rattled by a fact that a covey of bobwhite would fl- flush up out of the ground and scare me to death. 
And I said, it's been 25 years since I have seen a covey of quail burst up from underneath my feet, walking through a brushy field. And I said, so imagine in 25 years, what's happened in my life. You know, I'm 42. I just turned 42 in June. You guys are young like I am. Although I, I think we're all kind of embracing middle age now. I, I, I appreciate that. I'm actually much older than you are. <laughs> well, you, you, sound, you sound young. Thank right? you. We all do. Young at heart. But, but you know, I've got, you know, you, you hit this point in life where you see your grandparents aging. You see mm -hmm. your, your own parents, you know, are all of a sudden at an age you can remember them, you know, you're at the age you remember them being 25, mm -hmm. 30 years ago. Yeah. And you think, holy shit, how did life just go by that fast? You have kids that are all of a sudden grown. And, and when I thought about it that way from a personal side, how quickly that 25 years happened and what kind of loss, in, the, in this case, the one example of no longer seeing Bob White quail, that was in that 25-year period. I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, by the time my daughter is my age now, in another 25 years, what's, what is she going to not see and what, what else kind of destruction will we see? So that's really how the 25 years will be too late kind of came into being. But in terms of what you ask about, what are some of the most pressing um, issues that we see currently? I'm going to leave you. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you about one that I think is a really dramatic uh, crisis that we are possibly looking at. Um, we currently guys all across the Southeastern grasslands focal area have what we call buried treasure. Okay. Okay. This buried treasure, if you walk through most of the fire suppressed forests that used to be savannas in places like Carolina, or East Texas or, or wherever, you may be walking through a forest and overhead there's southern red oak and white oak, post oak, mockernut hickory, shortleaf pine, pitch pine. Those trees that are now completely shaded over are dropping needles and leaf litter, which is now most time coating the ground. And if you're lucky in those areas, or if, you, if you're a careful observer in those areas, Look at the ground of one of those dry forests next time and see what you see. I promise you, you'll see the following. You're going to see some blueberries that are probably not especially fruitful. You're going to see some poison ivy and some green briar. Mm -hmm. You're probably going to see a few seedlings of um, red maple popping up in a light gap. You're going to see a lot of leaf litter, and you're going to see nothing else. Um, but if you're really observant and careful – you should strive to see if you could find the basal leaf of a wild quinine or a single stem of goat's rue or maybe a slight clump of little blue stem. What you cannot see because it's underground is you can't see the seed bank mm -hmm. and you can't see the rootstocks that are still alive underground. So let me, let me stop there and go to another quick story of what we would like to see. And then I'll come back and pair these up again. All right. So in Tennessee, totally by accident is how we discovered this buried treasure. Um, there was a guy who worked for our state game agency called the Tennessee Wildlife Resource Agency named Clarence Coffey. Clarence is retired, and he's an avid um, uh, reader of, of early American history. And he, in, in his job as a biologist for the game agency, had been saying for many years, we are mismanaging 
much of East Tennessee's landscapes that are wildlife management areas. I mean, we're talking about like 100,000 acres of land is being managed for closed canopy dry forest. He said, I'm telling you, based on what I'm reading here from the 1830s, 1840s up to the Civil War, there's a lot of descriptions of savannas for this region. I think we're totally mis- mis- mismanaging this. And few would listen to Clarence. Well, in the late 80s and early 90s, they, their, their hand got forced to listen because all of a sudden they saw they were about to lose tens of thousands of dollars, probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in potential lumber as a result of a uh, oncoming uh, pine beetle infestation. So the southern pine beetle was about to absolutely ravage about a thousand acres of old growth shortleaf pine forest on the Cumberland Plateau of Tennessee. So the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency uh, decided to go in and sort of preemptively go in and do a salvage timber operation because they were going to lose this pine anyway. They might as well go ahead and cut it out. Now, um, so they did that. And just before that, a couple of years early, around 1989 or 1990, uh, there was a bird in those pine, pine forests that basically took its last breath. And that's called the red cockaded woodpecker. Okay. And that species basically needs open pine savannas. What had happened, though, is that those historic savannas had closed in and become so dense and closed that that bird no longer was able to survive. And that was the second to last site known in Tennessee. So the bird disappears. They go on managing it as a closed forest. And then all of a sudden, now the pine beetle is going to open it up. It's going to cause them to do the salvage timber operation. So they go in, they open it up about a thousand acres. And guys, within a span of three or four years after doing some prescribed burning, the response was incredible. They saw plants that had never been seen there in a half a century. And so now 20 years has gone by. And what we're looking at is a thousand acres of savanna. And so they had some plots that they had done. Before they did this, they went in, there were 30 species on average of plants on the ground. After opening it up, there were over 330. Wow. Wow. It was such a vigorous response that other agencies in the state actually accused our game agency of planting all this stuff. (laughs) You guys know how ludicrous that is. You can't buy that seed anywhere. Yeah. And so the, the lesson then is that that's a great and hopeful lesson. But now let's look back at what that forest went through. It had been a closed forest for 75 years. So what that means is all that stuff had been there underground the whole time. So the question we're going to ask, and I'll ask of your listeners, is we know now from examples in Tennessee and, and a couple other sites that the seed bank and or rootstock bank, probably a combination of both, can last for a half century. It can do pretty good in some cases if managed okay, okay up to three quarters of a century. Can it last 80 or 100 years? Mm-hmm. So I think we have this 25-year window where we're going to begin to lose our treasure map. And we will reach a point where this underground biodiversity that now awaits us over millions of acres across the eastern landscape that's suppressed under forest, if we don't act quickly to restore those open savannas from current closed forests, we're going to lose our buried treasure forever. 
you know, it's funny because we, we're, we're seeing that strategy with other organizations. Yeah. Also, we had uh, a few episodes ago John Park from New Jersey Audubon with their Quail Initiative, mm-hmm. uh, and that's what they're, they're working with landowners just to try to get them to open their forests yeah. uh, and, and, and let some of that light in uh, mm-hmm. just to, to hit that seed bank and, and start to yeah, bring same that. Same thing with uh, Dr. Jay Kelly with uh, yeah. Deer and Native Plants Part 1. Yeah. He was kind of saying, oh, yeah, you don't need to buy any of this seed or you don't need to buy plants. Just cut down some trees, and that light is going to really open things up. Yeah, you could never afford yeah. to plant what you would get if you yeah. would just open the forest up a little bit. And it's it's interesting you just told that story, Dwayne, because last weekend I was down – I belonged to a hunting club down in the Pine Barrens, and we have a little clubhouse that we maintain, and it was my turn to go down and maintain some stuff. And um, went down, and I hiked around in the forest a little bit, and what I see was – like shortleaf pine and pitch pine and a couple different species of oak and the understory was blueberry that didn't have many fruit and some poison ivy and i ran into a lot of green briar which wasn't the most fun for where i was trying to go (laughs) it was always in my way and didn't really see anything like once you got under that blueberry layer there really wasn't anything else growing meanwhile we have a a trap shooting range at this club that hadn't been mowed in a couple months because no one had been down there and what's growing there and just, just probably two or three months without being mowed you have like waist high broom sedge and little blue stem and there's some other little species that are popping up and that's only three months and then now you take three or four years i could completely see how you'd get 300 species in a large oh. enough area if in just a few years it's it's one of it's the, there one of the mo- more eye-opening uh, talks that I saw was a study in in Pennsylvania in kind of like central Pennsylvania where they were going through and removing dams that had been there from uh, early settlers mm-hmm. where they had moved um, moved the the waterways to their fields there were no riparian buffers it was more for for farming that they had dammed up and they were going through and removing those dams and moving the waterways back to where their their original flow was. And one of the things that they noticed right away were the diversity of plant species that came back that hadn't been seen in that area in such a yeah. like they're like mimulus and things that we didn't plant just the seed bank was there the seed was still good mm-hmm. and it, it came up immediately and immediately protected those waterways. Mm-hmm. Um, man, it's, it's that's a really great story there. I'd love to know more about that. If you don't mind, I'd love if you can share any information about that. I'd, that's a really cool cool story. You, you know what? I should have. It was a conference I went to probably about 10 years ago, and I, I probably still have the paperwork from it. I'll go through and I'll, I'll try to get you that so uh, I can share that with you. I'll, I'll, I should be able to get that to you by tomorrow. I mean, it's cool. It's cause what you're describing is basically these time capsules, right? Yeah. yeah. If just, I mean, it's, it's just, um, it blows the mind to think about what is still under your feet. And, you know, I think that it goes back to if we ask the reasons, well, okay, why is it that way? It's We would argue it's that way because we've all, it's just like we started the conversation. We've all heard the myth of the squirrel. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've spoken about 10,000 people face-to-face um, in the two years, two and a half years that we developed SGI. And I usually poll all the audiences to see, okay, how many of you guys in here have heard the myth of the squirrel? And I'd say averaging in and out over those 10,000 people, easily 60% of, of my audiences have heard that story. Mm. Wow. And that means that, you know, probably about 60% of the American people, if not a greater, 
they view the eastern landscape as inherently a forested landscape. That's what it should be. And so that permeates everything we do in terms of how we prioritize conservation areas, how we manage conservation areas, how we fund them. You know, and I think that's the reason why today we're, you know, a lot of corporations are putting money into planting trees. You know, I mentioned the Grand Prairie in northern uh, Virginia and adjacent Maryland and, and West Virginia. That's an area, for example, there's a couple of massive corporations that are pouring in millions of dollars into a tree planting project in that general region. And I've got to wonder, like, do those corporations realize that they're advocating planting trees in an area where meadowlarks are still struggling to maintain an existence in those cattle pastures, where bobwhite are still running the fence rows because the fence row with the, the little brush mm-hmm. that it's got is the nearest thing left to the savannas that used to cover that entire region. And yet we have corporations irresponsibly promoting the planting of massive tree plantings in areas that historically are grasslands and their biodiversity is still clinging to life. And we're going to put the final nail in the coffin when we do that in some areas. I mean, we're seeing, you know, obviously we had New York city doing the million tree initiative and, and, uh, Pennsylvania right now they're doing a 10 million 10, million, yeah. 10 million trees in in five years I mm-hmm. think it is it's it's a big undertaking uh tree wise so uh I don't know what parts of of Pennsylvania that's hitting or if it's all of Pennsylvania but 10 million trees is a lot of trees yeah, <laughs> yeah and I think as long as they're done smartly with the right mm-hmm. attention to, to species and in the right areas you know I applaud those efforts but I just I think we do need to be conscientious of you know not not removing and not planting trees on where there's still high potential for restoration mm-hmm. or even modest, modest potential. So what are, what are some of SGI's priority? Like we we're talking about some of the challenges. What are, what are SGI's priorities and strategies moving forward? We've got four programmatic priorities um, and, and what we call eight conservation strategies. So for our priorities, the sort of things that guide us in our day-to-day work, um, one is we want to really, we realized that there was a void in thinking about southeastern grassland open landscapes. And that's really the central role that our organization wants to fill is to, it's not to necessarily step in to be the leader, but to give the grasslands a voice. And, and in that, our four priorities, one is to provide leadership. And so uh, we're trying to station various coordinators ecologists on the ground in various places throughout our region. So we've got a new coordinator who works out of uh, our home base in Tennessee. Uh, We have another one in Nashville, Tennessee, another one in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, We've got a new coordinator that's developing in Athens, Georgia, as part of a partnership with the University of Georgia. And we're looking to establish these new coordinators soon in Arkansas. And and we've got one uh, now in Chapel Hill as well. So these coordinators will basically help to inspire and provide teamwork and partnership on the ground because what we don't want this to ever become is we don't want SGI to be a top-down approach. It's really got to be bottom-up. So we want these coordinators to to be stationed and based in these various communities where they work with volunteers and they inspire that local effort to do what they can on the grasslands of that particular region. So our hope is one day to have a coordinator be based in the mid-Atlantic region Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to serve that Maryland, New Jersey, Pennsylvania uh, area. 
leadership for us also takes takes form in uh, being a leader with regards to the science behind Southern Grasslands. So we've assembled a, a team of really uh, leading scientists and conservationists uh, representing much of our region to uh, draft a white paper, <clears throat> which will be published uh, later this year or the beginning of next year, that kind of addresses the science needs of Southern grassland communities. Okay. And, um, and so that, that I think is really important uh, there. Our second priority is education and outreach. Um, we want to do things like produce documentary videos that tell the story. We want educational materials and the education that comes with, you know, working with empowered volunteers on the ground. The last, the last two priorities that we have uh, are things we're still working to achieve. Uh, one is policy. We need to do more in D.C. and in the local state capitals to try to bring awareness to grassland landscapes and their needs. But the final thing, which uh, is we want to develop a granting program. We want to work with philanthropists and corporations to establish a grant program where we can give back to people on the ground. And so we're proud to, to announce that very soon we have the start of that grant program is getting established thanks to an uh, incoming federal grant, which uh, will allow us to administer $116,000 toward um, uh, conserving prairies in Kentucky as a starting point. Well, oh, wow. Eventually, we want to expand that across our entire region. That's fantastic. That's incredible. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now, in the in the two years that you've been going, what what's some of the good work that you've been able to accomplish? Well, you know, the promise that I wanted to give to my kids was I want to create new prairies for them while they were still kids, right? Yeah. So my, my oldest daughter now just turned 14. My middle is about to be 12. My son's about to be six. And I'm happy to report that in, a, in that two-and-a-half to three-year period, that we since we started, we have now created over 100 acres of high quality wow. prairie. Wow! And and I'm talking about using species mixes between 50 and 75 species for those mixes. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, beyond that, we're working with several hundred additional acres of new prairie that's going on the ground between this year and next, as part of the federal funded program to work with private landowners in Kentucky and Tennessee. So, and that's in partnership with Quail Forever and American Bird Conservancy and, and many others. But that effort will put in on the ground at least 500 acres, but, but probably ultimately over 1,000 acres on the ground. Um, I think those are the things I'm most proud of. You should we've be. Yeah. We've discovered some new species along the way. We've got a lot of great volunteer work. But looking back and saying that man we we did it we have created these prairies and after you know year three now that some of them are going into year three they're beautiful and mm. we did it and it's so invigorating because what we see now is that the public is doing what i always hoped they would do one of them for example is in the middle of an urban area in in my hometown of clarksville tennessee and it's it is now a public destination. People come and they run the trails through there. They come and do homeschool lessons there. Kids are taking field trips there. It is literally adding to and helping to change our community and giving them what we did not have back in the winter of 2015 when I was suffering from nature deficit disorder. That's a lot of great work in such a short amount of time. That's mm -hmm. like having a toddler performing Shakespeare. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe even writing Shakespeare. Yeah, writing it. Yeah. yeah. 
you know, it's that's that's sure. that's a lot in in yeah. the infancy of that organization. I'm really looking forward to what else gets accomplished. So, so Dwayne, you've started doing uh, something that I've always wanted to do, and that's and I've even told Fran I was going to do it, and I never did. But I've countless times I've been driving down the highway, and I see uh, this. Well, it was this spring I saw all these Bradford pears just growing along the side of the highway, and it was driving me nuts. And I'm like, I should just get out and get on my phone and just start recording a video saying this is what we're talking about when we're talking about invasive plants, and this is why you need to not do it. And Lo and behold, you're actually doing that. You're driving down the interstate, and then you get out and start taking videos and <laughs> looking at the remnant. What, what finally pushed you over the edge that you had to pull over the car after you're driving 70-some miles an hour down the road that you had to get out and, and uh, I don't want to say go on a rant, but, but I guess start preaching? Well, you know, it was, it was hard, man, because I, I didn't know. It's like I, I wanted to do something. I wanted to use my voice. But at the same time, I didn't I didn't have enough confidence initially to to think about it. And I and I, I really thought about doing it years ago, you know, in some form or fashion. But I think eventually I, I felt like okay, I I've, I have a platform. We have a lot of people who are, that are interested in our work. I have a responsibility to get on here. And yes, I'm passionate. But I hope I never come across as being too preachy or you know, too one-sided, but I have a responsibility to try to speak to these issues. And, you know, I, I don't know how to, I don't have a video crew. I don't have like a high dollar camera. It's just me and my smartphone. And I thought, <laughs> you know what? That's okay. We live in this now age where people are, you know, shooting selfies left and right. This is a, a form of uh, communication that a lot of people, especially younger generations now understand they, and they, they appreciate so I, I said, you know what, I'm going to just go for it. And I'm going I'm to roll with it and try it. And, you know, sometimes I, I get a little bit too wild out there. But um, <laughs> ultimately, you know, it's mostly a good fun. But I do try to raise awareness about some critical issues that I see. And I've been really inspired recently this past year by seeing a lot of other people who are beginning to do that too. And I think it's really mm -hmm. cool. I, I enjoy watching other people do it as much as I enjoy doing it myself. Yeah. It's I, I think all you need is a smartphone these days, yeah. and you can reach hundreds, yeah. and, hundreds and thousands right. of people. You just have to have something worth saying. I might have to start doing it too, because then it'll make my wife a lot happier. Because then I'm not just doing it in the car as we're driving, <laughs> driving by. I'll actually have right. someone else who's, and she can just roll up the window and put turn the music oh, up, and not have to exactly, listen. That's what they do to me. I mean, you know, man, I'll I'll do it on, like on the way to vacation. Like I'll stop. Wait a minute, stop. <laughs> And now, you know, my family, uh, they're all very supportive, but they, they get tired of my, my routine, my dog and pony show, uh, every once in a while. No, it's all, it's all good stuff. We, we all appreciate yeah. that. One other thing I actually saw through social media that you guys were doing is it was actually you and, um, our mutual friend, John Seymour for Roundstone Seed. You got to go to a pretty pre prestigious, uh, corporate headquarters and pitch what SGI is doing. I guess, how do you open those doors? And then how do those conversations go when you, you get to sit down with them? Yeah, that's, you're right. John's a great friend. And uh, man, Roundstone has been so good to us. And I, I think one thing I should say before I forget about it is, you know, back when I told you I had that experience of that prairie up in Kentucky on that, mm -hmm. on that winter's day, 
the very first people I went to to talk to about my ideas to make a local change was I went to Randy Seymour, John's dad, yeah. okay. you know, the patriarch and founder of Roundstone Native Seed. And I, I went up and had lunch at Randy's house with him and sat there and for like two or three hours we visited. And he says, Dwayne, what is it you're trying to do that you want to do? And I explained to him all that I told you guys. And I said, Randy, I just want to make a local change. I said, I want to, I want to create a prairie that kids can come to. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you, Roundstone will give you everything you need to do a 15-acre high-diversity prairie. He said, we'll, we'll give you all the herbicide you need to prepare the site. We'll come down and plant it. We'll give you a seed mix of 50 to 60 species, all local genotype. And he said, that'll be our gift to you to get this started. Wow. And that was valued at like $35,000. Yeah. Wow. And so that's, you know, so I need to just acknowledge Roundstone off the bat for that. Um, because of Roundstone taking a chance on us and, and, and making that gift, that's what originally led to us being able to open doors with others. Because then I could go to Bridgestone Americas and say, hey, Bridgestone, um, we got this private company. The seed company is going to give us this gift. You know, we're about to host a symposium. Can you guys help us with that? And, um, you know, and they said, yeah, we'll give you a few hundred dollars towards it. Well, by the time I did that over a three-month period, I was able to leverage Roundstone's pledge to raise another $30,000 in about three months to put that symposium on. Um, But, you know, I think uh, how do you you get those people to the table? That's a great question. I, I think that to sum this up, we got really lucky, guys. And, and we would not have been discovered. I still think we would be just crawling along. But because we had somebody who is amazingly well-connected, who was associated with the foundation, whose job is it is is to try to find good places to give money to, to support projects, them taking a risk on us and giving us that start allow, and, and allowed us to then go to other places and say, will you come and join us? And that, that has just made all the difference in the world. So I think that also speaks to what our continual needs are, which is we are continually looking for ambassadors who can speak on behalf of SGI, on behalf of grassland conservation. And we're continually looking for connectors who can help us, you know, open doors um, to, to even greater support. It's not just about finding support for SGI's team. It's about finding support for grasslands conservation. And so that's, that's, um, we've been real fortunate now to, you know, to, to team up with Google and, um, we've been real fortunate to, to team up with about probably six or seven of the major federal uh, agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got brand new philanthropic support coming from private foundations out of Chattanooga, like the Lyndhurst foundation, the Riverview foundation, private donors in Little Rock, but also a lot of small scale donors guys are, are coming to our rescue. And, you know, every week goes by, people are sending us $5, $100, occasionally $1,000. And now I tell you, that makes all the difference in the mm-hmm. world, those small scale mm-hmm. donations. That, that all adds up. That all adds up. And that's, that's wonderful. I think, uh, you know, another public perception is that like something nature-based isn't something that corporate America would get behind. When yeah. we had Dr. Uh, Sala on from National Geographic, he was saying he thought it'd be easier to convince a room full of politicians uh, <laughs> yeah. to do conservation than it would be to convince corporate America to to conserve. So I thought 
you know, after seeing the, the companies that you, that have gotten involved, I, I thought it was mm-hmm. wonderful. So I guess the, the one of the last questions we want to hit on is one of the reasons we started this was so our listeners could get involved either through volunteer time or, or donating. What can they do to help SGI? Thanks, guys. Yeah, I think the, the first thing to do is go to our website, which is www.segrasslands.org. And on our homepage, uh, they can do a couple things. One is um, I would encourage them to watch our um, – 15-minute mini-documentary that talks about what the issues are. And then the second thing is there's a link on there to join us where they can sign up to receive our newsletter or if they're interested in figuring out how they can volunteer, uh, they can they can sign that up there. Uh, those are, I think, the, the first steps, and we really appreciate the time you guys have given us today to talk about grassland conservation, and I appreciate it very much, guys. Oh, thank you. Thank you greatly. So we, we always – kind of end on one last question um which is you know just rounding it back to native plants what what is your favorite native plant you know that that actually evolves for me so i go from one year to the next of having a different favorite my favorite right now is a plant called the american chaff seed Hmm. and uh schwalbia americana it's a federally endangered species and it is barely clinging to life in pine savannas across the South. And, and, but I've recently heard that they actually discovered a new population of that up in either Massachusetts or Connecticut, uh, on the side of like an air, air, uh, airport runway. Hmm. And so that's a species that used to be up and down the Atlantic seaboard. And today you really got to go to some of the military bases, uh, like Fort Bragg, North Carolina and the Mm -hmm. pine savannas to find it. But it used to be much more abundant up and down through like Maryland and many other areas. I think and it's a it's a testament to what once was. It's a testament to the past. Um, that's I think that's my favorite for twenty twenty. That's a great choice. And everyone's everyone's choice changes. We all Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We could probably name a different one every episode. I'm wondering if, if that's a plant that could be found here in uh well, I'm, McGuire. I'm looking it up right Dick's now Licker. and it shows that we have a population actually in our county. Wow, there's in the South Jersey. It was historically native, but it looks like it's uh, there might be there's some around here someplace. I, I wonder. If I it's wouldn't still, doubt if it's still hanging out in there. Yeah, yeah. Probably still in the Pine Barren somewhere. In, if there's in, a well-managed uh, site, Chatsworth. I'm glad. Chatsworth. I'm glad okay. you brought that Not up because yeah, <laughs> I didn't you. even know that plant existed. We'll have to make a field trip. Yeah. We'll have to make a field trip. So we always after after the last question, we kind of open the floor. Uh, we do a, a final thought. So we're going to open the floor back up to you. You can say anything you want. If there's anything you want to promote, anything you want to add, now's the time. Uh, floor's all yours. I appreciate it, guys. I think the biggest thing is that, um, you know, we probably shot ourselves in the foot by, you know, naming our organization the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative. But in a lot of ways, you know, we want folks that are at the the edge of our ranges in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, uh, and others to know that you are in our region and and, and while our title may not necessarily reflect the fact that, you know, not many people in the Pennsylvania, for example, would consider themselves to be Southeastern. We are fighting on behalf of the biodiversity that you guys hold dear in your states, mm-hmm. just as much as we are for the biodiversity of Alabama, Florida, and Arkansas. So please know that to your listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, please uh, make sure you think about us when you think about 
conservation and networking. If you know of potential connectors, uh, we may have a really exciting multi-year challenge grant coming up soon from the Band Foundation, for example. Um, that it could be several hundred thousand dollars, where if we raise several hundred thousand, they'll give us several hundred thousand. So we're going to begin to need to um, explore and expand on new connections. Um, and so we really need to do a better job of growing into the Mid-Atlantic region, not only from a connection standpoint, but with our volunteer base, with our partnership base. So I'd just like your listeners to think about that. And if they see any connecting points with work that we're doing mm -hmm. with the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative, to please let us know. And uh, we would look forward to continue to build that relationship. Awesome. Thank you for all the great work you do. Friend, why don't you go next? Uh, you know, one thing, I actually have a final thought. I didn't know that I, I would. <laughs> you know, just everyone, do your research. It, it's mm -hmm. really easy to, to assume something is is true or accurate. Um, you know, investigate. Don't just take uh, someone's word as like a squirrel can travel from, from here to there as as fact. You know, do a little mm -hmm. research, and it's a, it's amazing what you come up with. Uh and, and, and you grow that way, and, and it's amazing just what, what you pick up. Like yeah. it's sometimes yeah. I end up after one of these one of these shows, I end up going down a rabbit hole with, <laughs> <laughs> with you know, and, and that's what sparks the next episode and the episode after that. So it's uh, I, I love when, when someone comes on and sets us all straight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and the stories that you had were, were fabulous, uh, the historical stories. So mm -hmm. it's you know, it definitely has opened my eyes and it makes me look at it a little bit differently. And I hope it does for everyone else also. All right, Tom, yeah. that's all you. So mine was really about the origin of this podcast and it all kind of started because I was, uh, I listened to a lot of podcasts and I was mowing my lawn last summer and, um, I was listening to a podcast called Land and Legacy, which is a hunting focused podcast, but they really focus on some of the native plant stuff. And that was the episode I stumbled on first was with a fellow, Justin Adams, who works at Pure Air Native Seed, who's a, another nursery or seed producer that we work with out in Missouri. Um, listen to them. And then the next week, it was Dr. Dwayne Estes, who I had actually just met a couple months earlier at a meeting in Kentucky. So I was like, oh, I can't wait to listen to this one. And um, as I was listening, I'm like, man, we could do this. We know a lot of – we work with so many organizations that are doing – Maybe not the same work, but similar work. We and Fran already had an existing podcast, so uh, that no one listened. Yeah, to. and then it, it took <laughs> it took six months until we finally got started. But it was, um, I guess, we can thank you, Dwayne, for kind of the inspiration, the inspiration to to start doing something with this. And and one of our big focuses, in addition to connecting our listeners with these organizations, is to connect the organizations together. So uh, as you're coming into the Mid-Atlantic, I think that's we want to help you in any way we, we can. And I think one of the ways we can initially help you is by connecting you with some of these organizations that we've had on or are planning on having on as well. Yeah, I think I think uh, you should probably talk with John Park from New Jersey Audubon. Yep. I think that would be And I actually great... brought your name up to him when he was here a week or two ago. <laughs> so we have some people who will probably be contacting you in the not-too-distant future. But, well, but that'd we... be great. I really appreciate that. Yeah. But with that, we want to thank everyone for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening about the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative. Make sure you follow them at www.segrasslands.org, uh, Facebook at Southeastern Grasslands, 
and uh, on Twitter at SE Grasslands. Um, really, the social media stuff you guys are doing is great, so make sure you look there. Thank everyone for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet, presented by Pylons Nursery. I'd like to give a big thank you to Stephen Marr for contributing our theme music. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, and YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Uh, we now also have a question and answer line yeah. uh, that we, we really would like everyone to take advantage of. You can call us at area code 215-346-6189, and you can leave a comment or ask a question. If we pick your question or comment, we'll play it on the air uh, and answer it on a future uh, podcast. So, And let's not forget about the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. Uh, as always, let's keep the conversation going. Make sure you're sharing and commenting on the Nature and Nature post to win a copy of Dr. Sala's new book. Yeah, and you can listen to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. Um, also on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for the five-star reviews from H. Pates and, oh, man, friend. Reeves? Reeves? Reeves, Reeves, Reeves D. D. <laughs> <laughs> so, and they are now entered to win a copy of that, uh, the Nature and Nature book as well. Um, so make sure you leave a review if you want to win. So, and um, You have a couple more weeks. Yeah. I think two more weeks. To you can it. also listen on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, YouTube, or just ask Alexa to play the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. Thanks again, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Uh, Dr. Estes, thank you again so much. Uh, I love this one. Thank you for being a part of this. Uh, thanks, Scott. Uh, anytime, anytime. And thanks again, everyone, for listening. We will see you again next time. Until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.